welcome back to This Week Back Then, Episode 9. Today we're going to talk about events that happened between March 28th and April 3rd. On March 28th in 1881, P.T. Barnum merged his circus with another circus run by James Anthony Bailey and James E. Cooper, creating what became known as Barnum and Bailey Circus. I'll give you a little history of these circuses, or circi if you prefer, and uh, what brought them together. Hakaliah Bailey appears to have established one of the earliest circuses in the United States after he purchased an African elephant whom he named Old Bet around 1806, just 13 years after John Bill Ricketts first brought circus to America from Great Britain. Barnum, who as a boy had worked as a ticket seller for Hakaliah Bailey's show, had run the Barnum's American Museum from New York City since 1841 from the former Scudder's American Museum building. Besides building up the existing exhibits, Barnum brought in animals to add zoo-like elements and a freak show. During this time, Barnum took the museum on road tours, named P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling American Museum. The museum burned down in July 1865. Though Barnum attempted to reestablish the museum at another location in the city, it too burned down in 1868, and Barnum opted to retire from the museum business. In 1871, Dan Costello and William Cameron Coop persuaded Barnum to come out of retirement as to lend his name, know-how, and financial backing to the circus they had already created in Delavan, Wisconsin. The combined show was named P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. (laughs) As described by Barnum, Costello and Coop had a show that was truly immense and combined all the elements of museum, menagerie, variety performance, concert hall, and circus, and is and considered it to be potentially the greatest show on earth, which subsequently became part of the circus's name. Independently of Costello and Coop, James Anthony Bailey had learned, had teamed up with James E. Cooper to create the Cooper and Bailey Circus in the 1860s. The Cooper and Bailey Circus became the chief competitor to Barnum Circus. As Bailey's Circus was outperforming his, Barnum sought to merge the circuses, uh, the two groups agreed to combine their shows on March 28, 1881, initially named Get ready for this. P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth and the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, and the Grand International Allied Shows United. <laughs> How'd you like to have that business card? It'd be like an eight, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Um, it was eventually shortened to Barnum and Bailey Circus, which makes a lot more sense. Uh, Bailey was instrumental in acquiring Jumbo, advertised as the world's largest elephant for the, for the show. After Jumbo died, Barnum donated his taxidermied remains to Tufts University, on whose board of trustees Barnum served as one of Tufts' first trustees. The Barnum Museum of Natural History opened in 1884 on the Tufts campus, and Jumbo was a prominent part of the display. To this day, the Tufts, Tufts athletic mascot is Jumbo, and its athletic teams are referred to as the Jumbos. Barnum died in 1891, and Bailey then purchased the circus from his widow. Bailey continued touring the eastern United States until he took his circus to Europe. That tour started on December 27th of 1897 and lasted until 1902. Separately, in 1884, five of the seven Ringling brothers had started a small circus in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Wow, Wisconsin must be the epicenter for circus creation, I guess. 
<laughs> this was about the same time that Barnum and Bailey were at the peak of their popularity. Similar to dozens of small circuses that toured the Midwest and the Northeast at the time, the brothers moved their circus from town to town in small animal-drawn caravans. Their circus rapidly grew, and they were soon able to move their circus by train, which allowed them to have the largest traveling amusement enterprise of that time. Bailey's European tour gave the Ringling Brothers an opportunity to move their show from the Midwest to the Eastern Seaboard. Faced with a new competition, Bailey took his show west of the Rocky Mountains for the first time in 1905. He died the next year, and the circus was sold to the Ringling Brothers, uh, who went on to operate it for years and years. Uh, with weakening attendance, many animal rights protests, and high operating costs, the circus performed its final show on May 21, 2017 at Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum and closed after 146 years. On March... 29th, uh, way back in 845, the Vikings siege, siege Paris. In uh, March 1845, a fleet of 120 Viking ships containing more than 5,000 men entered the sign under the command of a chieftain named Reginerus, or Ragnar. This Ragnar had uh, often been tentatively identified with the legendary saga figure Ragnar Lodbrook. Uh, but the accuracy of this remains a disputed issue among historians. Around 841, Ragnar had been awarded land in Turholt, Flanders, by Charles the Bald, but eventually lost the land as well as favor of the king. Uh, Ragnar's Vikings raided ruin on their way to the sign in 845, and in response to the invasion, Charles, who was determined not to let the royal abbey of St. Denis near Paris be destroyed, assembled an army which he divided into two parts, one for each side of the river. Ragnar attacked and defeated one of the divisions of the smaller Frankish army, took 111 of their men as prisoners, and hanged them on an island in the, on the Seine. This was done to honor the Norse god Odin, as well as to incite terror in the remaining Frankish forces. The Vikings arrived in Paris on Easter Sunday, March 29th, entered the city, and plundered it. During the siege, a plague broke out in their camp. The Norse had been exposed to the Christian religion, and after first praying to the Norse gods, they undertook a fast, acting on the advice of one of their Christian prisoners, and the plague subsided. The Franks could not assemble an effective defense, and the Vikings withdrew only after being paid a ransom of 7,000 French pounds of silver and gold by Charles the Bald, amounting to approximately 5,670 pounds of the precious metals. Considering Ragnar's earlier loss as of land uh, to Charles, the substantial payment may also have been regarded as some form of compensation to Ragnar and the invasion itself as an act of revenge. This was the first of a total of 13 payments of so-called Danegeld to Viking raiders by the Franks. Um, while agreeing to withdraw from Paris, Ragnar pillaged several sites along the coast on the return voyage, including the Abbey of St. Burton. Although Charles had been criticized severely for granting the large ransom payment to the Vikings, he had other more critical issues to deal with at the same time, including disputes with his brothers, regional revolts, and disgruntled nobles, as well as pressure from abroad. Since he would have trouble trusting his own, own counts to assemble and lead troops to defeat Ragnar's large mil force military, paying them off instead would buy Charles time and possibly peace from further Viking raids, at least in the near future. So that was the Viking siege of Paris in eight. 845, not 1845. In, uh, on, on March 29th of 1867, the famous Cy Young was born. Cy Young, uh, he left a legacy as a pitcher that is unlikely to ever be matched. The right-hander won 511 games during his tenure in baseball, almost 100 more than any other pitcher in history. 
He recorded 30 victories on five occasions and won 20 or more games 16 times. Young's best season came in 1901 when he led his in strikeouts with 158, wins with 33, and ERA with 1.62. It was the first year of the American League, and he set the bar high, winning its pitcher's triple crown. In 1903, he won two games in the first Modern World Series, helping Boston defeat the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, on May 5, 1904, Young pitched the first perfect game of the 20th century, a day he considered to be his, his greatest in baseball. Young totaled three no-hitters throughout his career. He still holds the records for most career innings pitched with 7,356. Games started with 815 and complete games with 749. He is the fourth all-time with 76 career shutouts. Young threw his first no-hitter on September 18, 1897. He did not walk a batter, but his team committed four errors. One was originally ruled a hit, but Cleveland's third baseman sent a note to the press box after... Uh, after the eighth inning, indicating that he had actually made an error, so the ruling on the field was changed. Young considered the game to be a one-hitter, despite a valiant effort from his teammate. In 1908, he pitched his third no-hitter at 41 years and three months old, setting a record for oldest pitcher to throw a no-hitter that stood for 82 years. Young led his, led his league in victories on five occasions, in 1892, 1895, and from 1901 to 1903. In 1892, he, be, he reached a career high in wins with 36. He led the league in ERA, ERA twice with a 1.93 in 1892 and a 1.62 in 1901 and was, and was second three times in the same category. For 19 straight years, the right-handed pitcher was in the top 10 in his league for number of innings pitched. Young was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1937, and he passed away on November 4, 1955. Sam Walton was born on March 29th in 1918, would have been 103. He was, of course, the founder of the behemoth Walmart chain. Also on March 29th in 1945, actor Jimmy Stewart was promoted to full colonel. By the spring of 1941, Stewart was a successful movie star and an accomplished pilot with a commercial license and more than 300 hours in his logbook. He owned his own airplane, a Stinson 105, and was an investor in Thunderbird Field, a new venture in Phoenix that had a contract to train Army pilots. Had he waited until after Pearl Harbor to enlist, Stewart would have been a good candidate for the Army's Service Pilot Program, a program offering commissions and ratings as non-combat pilots to men with significant civilian flying experience. Stewart, however, decided to enlist after he received his draft notice in October 1940 in the very first draft and had been in the Army for several months before Pearl Harbor. When he reported for his physical, the lanky actor was found to be underweight, a finding that would have caused most men to breathe a deep sigh of relief. But the notice had stirred a patriotic chord in the young man from America's heartland, and he was determined to answer his country's call. He appealed the decision, and he passed the weigh-in the second time around. He said later that he had a friend manning the scales, while others have reported that he filled up on bananas. On March 22, 1941, the actor became a U.S. Army Air Corps private. Stewart became the first major American movie star to enlist in the United States Army to fight in World War II. His family had deep military roots. Both of his grandfathers had fought in the Civil War, and his father had served during both the Spanish-American War and World War I. Stewart received his commission as a second lieutenant on January 1, 1942. After enlisting, Stewart made no commercial films, although he remained under contract to MGM. His public appearances were limited to engagements for the Army Air Forces. 
The Air, Air Corps scheduled him on network radio with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and to the radio program, We Hold These Truths, a celebration of the United States Bill of Rights, which was broadcast a week after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Stewart also appeared in a first motion, motion picture unit short film, Winning Your Wings, to help recruit airmen. Nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 1942, it appeared in movie theaters nationwide beginning in uh, late May 1942 and resulted in 150,000 new recruits. Stewart was concerned that his celebrity status would relegate him to duties behind the lines. After spending over a year training pilots at Kirtland Army Airfield in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he appealed to his commander and was sent to England as part of the 445th Bombardment Group to pilot a B-24 Liberator in November 1943. Stuart was promoted to major following a mission in Ludwigshafen, Germany on January 7, 1944. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for actions as Deputy Commander of the 2nd Bombardment Wing and the French Croix de Guerre with Palm and the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters. Stewart was promoted to full colonel on March 29, 1945, becoming one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. At the beginning of June 1945, Stewart was the presiding officer of the court-martial of a pilot and navigator who accidentally bombed Zurich, Switzerland. Stewart returned to the United States in early fall 1945. He continued to play a role in reserve of the Army Air Forces after the war and was also one of the 12 founders of the Air Force Association in October 1945. Stewart would eventually transfer to the reserves of the United States Air Force after the Army Air Forces split from the Army in 1947. On July 23, 1959, Stewart was promoted to Brigadier General, becoming the highest-ranking actor in American military history. During the Vietnam War, he flew as a non-duty observer in a B-52 on an arc light bombing mission in February 1966. He ended up serving for 27 years, officially retiring from the Air Force on May 31, 1968, when he reached the mandatory retirement age of 60. Upon his retirement, he was awarded the United States Air Force Distinguished Service Medal. Stewart rarely spoke about his wartime service, but did appear in an episode of the British television documentary series, The World at War, in 1974, commenting on the disastrous 1943 mission against Schweinfurt, Germany. In 1985, he was promoted to the rank of Major General on the Air Force Retired List. So that is Jimmy Stewart's rise to Colonel in the United States Army. On March 30th of 1811, Robert Bunsen was born, and he is famous for inventing the Bunsen Burner. So everyone that's had a high school science class is familiar with what a Bunsen Burner is, I'm sure. Uh, which reminds me of a story in, in our chemistry class in high school. We had a substitute teacher one day, and you know those gas nozzles on the uh, lab tables where you hook the rubber hose to it and it hooks to the Bunsen burner? Well, we would take the rubber hose off and rub palm olive on the gas jet and slowly fill this palm olive bubble with gas until it left the nozzle, and then we'd light it on fire, <laughs> and a huge fireball would, would uh, engulf the room, basically. And it stunk the entire hallway up with gas and whatnot. And of course, we told our substitute that uh, that was just part of our chemistry experiment. This is what we were supposed to be doing. And, and he didn't know one way or the other, so he was okay with it. Um, and then the next day when Mr. Meharry returned, um, he lit us up. He had heard about it. And, and uh, we were all in uh, a little bit of trouble for that. But it was actually worth it. Um, also on March 30th in 1867, the United States buys Alaska from Russia. Russia had established a presence in North America during the first half of the 18th century, but few Russians ever settled in Alaska. 
In the aftermath of the Crimean War, Russian Tsar Alexander II began exploring the possibility of selling Alaska, which would be difficult to defend in any future war from being uh, conquered by Russia's main arch-rival, the United Kingdom. Following the end of the American Civil War, U.S. Secretary of State William Seward entered into negotiations with Russian Minister Edward de Stockel for the purchase of Alaska. Seward and Stockel agreed to a treaty on March 30, 1867, and the treaty was ratified by the United States Senate by a wide margin. Alaska was formally transferred to the United States on October 18, 1867, uh, through a treaty ratified by the United States Senate. The purchase added 586,412 square miles of new territory to the United States for the cost of $7.2 million, which was two cents an acre. <laughs> In modern terms, the cost was equivalent to $132 million, or 37 cents an acre. So quite the bargain. Uh, reactions to the purchase in the United States were mostly positive, as many believed possession of Alaska would serve as a base to expand American trade in Asia. Some opponents labeled the purchase as Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox, as they contended the, that the United States had acquired useless land. Nearly all Russian settlers left Alaska in the aftermath of the purchase. Alaska would remain sparsely populated until the Klondike Gold Rush began in 1896. Originally organized as the Department of Alaska, of Alaska the area would be was renamed the District of Alaska in 1884 and the Alaska Territory in 1912 before becoming the modern state of Alaska in 1959. On March 30, 1981, President Ronald Reagan is shot in the chest outside a Washington, D.C. hotel by a deranged drifter named John Hinckley Jr. I remember when this happened. I was in the third grade. Our teacher, Miss Mayers, she must have pulled some strings with the AV department because they wheeled a TV into our room and plugged it in. And, and we watched a lot of the coverage that day. Um, as a third grader, it was crazy. Uh, the president had just finished addressing a labor meeting at the Washington Hilton hotel and was walking, uh, with his entourage to his limousine when Hinckley standing among a group of reporters fired six shots at the president, hitting Reagan and three of his attendants. White house uh, Press Secretary James Brady was shot in the head and critically wounded. Sec uh, Secret Service Agent Timothy McCarthy was shot in the side and District of Columbia policeman Thomas Delahanty was shot in the neck. After firing the shots, Hinckley was overpowered and pinned against a wall, and President Reagan, apparently unaware that he'd been shot, was shoved into, the lim into his limousine by a Secret Service agent and rushed to the hospital. Uh, the president was shot in the left lung, and the twenty-two caliber bullet just missed his heart. In an impressive feat for a 70-year-old man with a collapsed lung, he walked into George Washington University Hospital under his own power. As he was treated and prepared for surgery, he was in good, good spirits and quipped to his wife, Nancy, Honey, I forgot to duck. And to his surgeons, Please tell me you're Republicans. <laughs> Reagan's surgery lasted two hours, and he was listed in stable and good condition afterward. The next day, the president resumed some of his executive duties and signed a piece of legislation from his hospital bed. On April 11th, he returned to the White House. Uh, Reagan's popularity soared after the assassination attempt, and at the end of April, he was given a hero's welcome by Congress. In August, the same uh, Congress passed his controversial economic program, with several, several Democrats breaking ranks to back Reagan's plan. By this time, Reagan claimed to be fully recovered from the assassination attempt. In private, however, he would continue to feel the effects of the near, nearly fatal gunshot wound for years. Of the victims of the assassination attempt, Secretary uh, Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy and D.C. policeman Thomas Delahanty eventually recovered. James Brady, who nearly died after being shot in the eye, suffered permanent brain damage. 
He later became an advocate of gun control, and in 1983, 1993, Congress passed the Brady Bill, which established a five-day waiting period and background checks for prospective gun buyers. President Bill Clinton signed the bill into law. After being arrested on March 30, 1981, 25-year-old John Hinckley was booked on federal charges of attempting to assassinate the president. He had previously been arrested in Tennessee on weapons charges. In June 1982, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. In the trial, Hinckley's defense attorneys argued that their client was ill with narcissistic personality disorder, citing medical evidence, and had a pathological obsession with the 1976 film Taxi Driver, in which the main character attempts to assassinate a fictional senator. His lawyers claimed that Hinckley saw the movie more than a dozen times, was obsessed with the lead actress Jodie Foster, and had attempted to reenact the events of the film in his own life. Thus, the movie... Thus, the movie, not Hinckley, they argued, was the actual planning force behind the events that occurred on March 30th, 1981. The verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity aroused widespread public criticism, and many were shocked that a would-be presidential assassin could avoid being held accountable for his crime. However, because of his obvious threat to society, he was placed in St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a mental institution. In the late 1990s, Hinckley's attorney began arguing that his mental illness was a remission and thus had a right to return to normal life. Beginning in August 1999, he was allowed supervised day trips off the hospital grounds and later was allowed to visit his parents once a week unsupervised. The Secret Service voluntarily monitored him during these outings. In 2016, he was given a conditional release to move in with his mother in Williamsburg, Virginia. In 2018, a judge ruled he can now live within 75 miles of Williamsburg, provided he meets regularly with his psychiatrist and social worker, among other conditions. On March 31st of 1889, the Eiffel Tower opens. In 1889, Paris hosted an exhibition universal. Universal. Uh, sure. World's Fair to mark the 100 year anniversary of the French Revolution. More than 100 artists submitted uh, competing plans for a monument to be built on the Camp de Mar located in central Paris and serve as the exposition's entrance. The commission was granted to Eiffel et Compagnie, a consulting and construction firm owned by the acclaimed bridge builder, architect, and metals expert Alexander Gustav Eiffel. While Eiffel himself often receives full credit for the monument that bears his name, it was one of his employees, a structural engineer named Maurice Coquelin, who came up with the, who came up with and fine-tuned the concept. Several years, several years earlier, the pair had collaborated on the Statue of Liberty's metal armature. Uh, did you know that the base pillars of the Eiffel Tower are oriented with the four points of the compass? Well, you do now. Um, Eiffel, <laughs> Eiffel reportedly rejected Coquelin's original plan for the tower, instructing him to add more ornate flour- flourishes. The final design called for more than 18,000 pieces of puddle iron, a type of wrought iron used in construction, and two and a half million rivets. Several hundred workers spent two years assembling the framework of the iconic lattice tower, which at its inauguration in March 1889 stood nearly a thousand feet and was the tallest structure in the world, a distinction it held until the completion of New York City's Chrysler Building in 1930. Um, In 1957, an antenna was added that increased the structure's height by 65 feet, making it taller than the Chrysler Building, but not the Empire State Building, which had surpassed its neighbor in 1931. Initially, only the Eiffel Tower's second floor platform was open to the public. Later, all three levels, two of which now feature restaurants, would be reachable by stairway uh, or one of eight elevators. Millions of visitors during and after the World's Fair marveled at Paris's newly erected architectural wonder. Not all of the city's inhabitants were as enthusiastic, however. Many Parisians, 
either feared it was structurally unsound or considered it an eyesore. The novelist Guy du Maupassant, for example, allegedly hated the tower so much that he often ate lunch in the restaurant at its base, the only vantage point from which he could completely avoid glimpsing its looming silhouette. Originally intended as a temporary exhibit, the Eiffel Tower was almost torn down and scrapped in 1909. City officials opted to save it after recognizing its value as a radio telegraph station. Several years later, during World War I, the Eiffel Tower intercepted enemy radio communications, relayed Zeppelin alerts, and was used to dispatch emergency troop reinforcements. It escaped deconstruction a second time during World War II. Hitler initially ordered the demolition of the city's most cherished symbol, but the command was never carried out. Also during the German occupation of Paris, French resistance fighters furiously cut the Eiffel Tower's elevator cables so that Nazis had to climb the stairs. Over the years, the Eiffel Tower has been the site of numerous high-profile stunts, ceremonial events, and even scientific experiments. In 1911, for instance, the German physicist Theodore Wolff used an electrometer to detect higher levels of radiation at its top than at its base, observing the effects of what are now called cosmic rays. The Eiffel Tower was also inspired more than 30 replicas and similar structures in various cities around the world. Now one of the most recognizable structures on the planet, the Eiffel Tower underwent a major facelift in 1986 and is repainted every seven years. It welcomes more visitors than any other paid monument in the world, an estimated 7 million people per year. Some 500 employees are responsible for its daily operations, working in its restaurants, manning its elevators, ensuring its security, and directing the eager crowds flocking the tower's platforms to enjoy panoramic, panoramic views of the City of Lights. On April 1st of 1930, Leo Gabby Hartnett, who was the catcher for the Chicago Cubs, caught a ball dropped from the blimp and set a world record for an 800-foot catch. Uh, he also did that while wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> I just thought, thought that was kind of interesting. On April 2nd of 1725, Casanova was born. So I'm about to give you more information than you probably ever needed to know about Casanova. Born in Venice in 1725, Casanova was a sharp child. No sharp, in fact. So sharp, in fact, that he entered the University of Padua at the age of 12. After graduating, he took up some of the vices that would make him a name, make him a name Europe-wide. Gambling for one, women for another. Whether it was his wit, his charm, or his style, or maybe just his hair, which he powdered, scented, and curled, they loved him. But it's, uh, but it's said that he really found his passion for them, too, when he had an affair, not just with a 16-year-old girl, but with her 14-year-old sister at the same time. If that weren't bad enough, years later, Casanova wound up in bed with one of the two sisters again, and her daughter, who was also his. Oh, my God. I did not know. I, I didn't pre-read this before I started this, so I was... Uh, never mind. <laughs> at the time, Casanova worked as a church cleric. Of course he worked in a church. It didn't last long. His gambling debts landed him in prison, and after a couple of other false starts in the church, he had to start over. His new career? As a soldier. I bought a long sword, and with my handsome cane in hand, a trim hat with black cock cockade... With my hair cut inside whiskers and a long false pigtail, I set forth to impress the whole city. Well, how how could you not with, with a get-up like that? Uh, Casanova writes in, in his memoirs, But finding military life boring and owing yet still more money from gambling, Casanova quit the military. How do you just quit the military? Okay. Now at 21 years old, Casanova became a violinist. There he caught the eye of a senator, being in the right place at the right time and saving his life certainly helped, who invited Casanova into his house and became his patron. 
But Casanova ran into trouble again. He fled Venice, escaped to Parma, fell in love, and had his heart broken. He went on, to grand tour, went on a grand tour and seduced dozens of women. He became a Freemason, wrote a play, and finally on 1753 returned to Venice. And things were just getting started. News of Casanova's escapades, his tawdry affairs with everyone from married women to nuns to virgins, his gambling, his association with Freemasonry had caught up with him. At 30 years old, Casanova was arrested by the Venice Tribunal, primarily, the tribunal said, for his public outrages against the holy religion. He was imprisoned in the Leeds and sentenced to remain there for five years. The cell, so nicknamed because of the lead of the leads. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, of the lead plate, plates covering the roof was thought to be completely inescapable. Almost pitch dark with and with such a low ceiling, Casanova couldn't even stand up straight. It was located on the top floor of five of the Do- Doji's palace. Like the rest of the prisons, it was heavily guarded. Escaping seemed impossible. Escaping and not being seen on the roof of the most famous building in Venice or not being heard while clattering down the, the lead tiles, even more so. Casanova remained in the le- in the leads for 13 months. His patron, Count Bragadin, finally convinced his keepers to move him, and Casanova was heartbroken. Why? Because he had been this close to breaking out. One day, while on a walk, he was allowed to, uh, allowed to take for exercise in the prison attic. He'd found a piece of black marble and an iron bar. He'd shaped the bar into a sharp chisel against the marble and then started to dig through the wooden floor beneath his bed. He knew his cell was right above the chamber of the Inquisitor, an issue he'd deal with after he escaped, but he never got the chance. Instead, just three days before he planned to escape, he was moved to his new, larger, and more lit cell, but he didn't languish in despair for long. It was time for Plan B. A priest lived in the cell right above Casanova. The priest liked to read, and the jailers were okay if the two educated prisoners exchanged books. Casanova wrote a note using mulberry juice for ink and stuck it in the book's spine. The two started riding back and forth. Casanova told the priest he planned to escape and asked for his help. All he had to do, he said, was break through his floor into Casanova's cell. Then Casanova would would spirit them both away. The priest, Balbi, agreed. Casanova sent him the spike he'd made. It was hidden in a Bible, which was carried under a big plate of pasta. After weeks of work, the priest broke through, but there was a few, was a new problem. Casanova had a new cellmate, and he was a spy for the Doji's Council of Ten, something he immediately told Casanova. Ever the trickster, Casanova played on his new cellmate's extreme faith. It had been revealed to him in a dream, Casan, uh, Casanova told the man, that an angel was going to come deliver him from prison. When the two men... When the, when the two of them heard the priest digging away, that, Casanova said, was the angel, and the man believed him. So, Balbi's cell was right under the roof of the palace, uh, so the two of them pried their way through the lead plates, and using the sheets, blankets, and even his mattress cover that Casanova had cut up and tied together to make rope, hoisted themselves onto the roof, but it was much too far to jump. Casanova searched everywhere. Nothing. Finally, after an hour, he saw a dormer window, two-thirds down the roof's slope. Using his pick, he pried off the grate over the, over the window, and after a perilous attempt that included Casanova himself almost sliding over the roof to his death, he was able to get both him and the priest inside. After resting, the pair broke a lock, walked into a palace corridor, and strolled out. They escaped by gondola at sunrise. Thus, Casanova wrote, did God provide me with what I needed for an escape, which was to be a wonder, if not a miracle. I admit that I am proud of it. 
Well, I would be too. As much of a close call as his imprisonment was, Casanova didn't take it as a sign that he should give up the game and retire to something a little more staid. Instead, he fled to Paris and pretended to be an alchemist. Every uh, patrician wanted a piece of Casanova. He told them that he was 300 years old, that he could create diamonds from scratch. Uh, He caught the eye of a count who saw through Casanova and decided that, given his ability to say anything with a straight face, he'd make an excellent spy. One of the missions was to sell uh, state bonds in Amsterdam. He became a wealthy man and then lost his wealth, particularly by spending it on his many lovers. Between his debts and his many enemies, he found himself on the lamb again. In 1760, completely penniless, Casanova's schemes began, became wilder and wilder, which almost seems impossible, wouldn't you think? He made up a new personality for himself. He was now the Chevalier de Saint-Gault. Uh, he went back to Paris and convinced a noblewoman he could make her a young could make her a young man using occult means if she paid him enough. He traveled to England and scammed his way into an audience with King George III. He met with Catherine the Great, trying to sell her the idea for a Russian lottery scheme. He dueled a colonel in Warsaw over an Italian actress. I mean, this guy's got quite the resume. In 1774, after 18 years of exile, Casanova won the right to return to Venice. Just nine years later, he wrote a a vicious satire of Venetian nobility that got him expelled once more. In his later years, Casanova slowed down, slightly. He became the librarian to Count Joseph Carl von Waldenstein in Bohemia, a position Casanova found so lonely and boring he considered suicide. He resisted the temptation, but only in order to record his memoirs. Venice was seized by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1797, and Casanova died the following year. He was 73 years old. (laughs) Wow, what a life. I mean, that's just crazy. Also on April 2nd in 1877, the first human cannonball gets fired off. Uh, It was launched in 1877 at the Royal Aquarium in London. Um, It was a 14-year-old girl called Zazelle, whose real name was Rosa Matilda Richter. She was launched by a spring-style cannon invented by Canadian William Leonard Hunt. Uh, The Great Farini was his name. Uh, She later toured with the P.T. Barnum Circus. Farini's cannon used rubber springs to launch a person from the cannon, limiting the distance they could be launched. Richter's career as a human cannibal ended when a launch went awry and she broke her back. In the 1920s, uh, Ildebrando Zacchini invented a cannon that used compressed air to launch a human cannibal. Zacchini's shot Zucchini shot his son, Hugo Zucchini, out of the compressed air cannon. Members of the Zucchini family were later inducted into the Ringling Brothers Circus Hall of Fame. There you go, human cannibal. On April 3rd of 1924, The Godfather was born. Marlon Brando, one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, Just incredible in almost everything he did. Um, Anyway, so 1924, Marlon Brando. In 1953, on, on April 3rd, uh, TV Guide uh, issued its very first issue. Uh, the National TV Guide's first issue was released on April 3, 1953, accumulating a total circulation of 1,560,000 copies that were sold in 10 U.S. cities uh, where it was distributed. The inaugural cover featured a photograph of Lucille Ball's newborn son, Desi Arnaz Jr., with a downscaled inset photo of Ball placed on the top corner under the issue's headline, Lucy's $50 Million Baby. The magazine was published in digest size, which remained its printed format for 52 years. The launch as a national magazine with local listings in April 1953 became an 
almost instant success. However, the circulation decreased over subsequent weeks, even as the magazine's distribution expanded to five additional cities throughout the summer of 1953. By mid-August of that year, sales of the magazine had dropped 200,000 copies below that of the first issue. TV Guide's fortune began to turn around with the September 4th through 10th, 1953 issue, the magazine's first fall preview issue, when circulation hit 1,746,000 copies. Circula- circulation levels increased steadily over time to the point where TV Guide eventually became the most read, and, most read and circulated magazine in the United States by the 1960s. The initial cost of each issue was 15 cents per copy, equivalent to $1.43. Uh, the price of each issue has gradually risen over the years, selling for four ninety nine a copy as of two thousand twenty one. In addition to subscriptions, TV Guide was sold uh, to was sold to the checkout counters of grocery stores nationwide. I, I remember seeing them as a kid there too. I don't even I didn't realize they still made them, but apparently they printed them not too long ago. Over the decades, the shape of the TV Guide logo has changed to reflect the modernization of the television screen, eventually adopting a widescreen appearance in September 2003, and then to its current flat screen appearance in September 2016. Uh, Different versions of the logo, uh, the only cosmetic difference being the utilization of different typefaces, are currently used respectively for the magazine and the separately owned CBS-managed digital properties. At first, the logo had various colored backgrounds, usually black, white, blue, or green, until the familiar red background became the standard in the 1960s, with occasional customizations being utilized for special editions. The magazine was first based in a small office in downtown Philadelphia, before moving to a more spacious national headquarters in Randor, Pennsylvania, in the late 1950s. The new facility, complete with a large lighted TV guide logo on the building's entrance, based its management editors, production personnel, and subscription processors, as well as a vast computer system holding data on every television show and movie available for listing in the popular weekly publication. Printing on the printing of the national color section of the TV guide, which incorporates television related stories and select feature columns, such as, such as program reviews took place at triangles, Gravure Division plant, which was known for performing some of the highest quality printing in the industry with almost always perfect registration. Uh, and that was located adjacent to the company's landmark Inquirer building on North Broad Street in Philadelphia. The color section was then sent to regional printers to be wrapped around the local listing sections. For the magazine's first 52 years of publication, Listings information was displayed in a log format, a mainly text-based list of programs organized by both start time and channel, which was the sole method eventually primary primary once primetime grids were incorporated and later secondary for the final two years of its inclusion of local listings of displaying program information in TV Guide until the switch to national listings in 2005. This allowed for the display of full titles for each program as well as the inclusion of synopses for movies and most programs. Most listings, most listing entries in the log included program genres and for national news programs, anchors, uh, after the program's title, while it's running time, which was mentioned only if a program lasted a minimum of one hour, later 35 minutes in length, was listed in hours and minutes in the synopses. On July 26, 2005, Gemstar TV Guide announced that TV Guide would abandon its longtime digest format, and begin printing as a larger full-size national magazine that would offer more stories and fewer program listings. All 140 local editions were eliminated, being replaced by two editions covering the time zones within 
the contiguous United States, one for the Eastern and Central, and one for the Pacific and Mountain. By 2007, TV Guide circulation had decreased to less than 3 million copies from a peak of almost 20 million copies in 1970. On September 14, 2020, Red Ventures announced its intent to acquire the assets of CNET Media Group, including TV Guide, from Viacom CBS. The transaction was completed on October 30, 2020. And that wraps up our episode uh, for today. Um, as always, I got my info from Wikipedia, history.com, onthisday.com, walks of Italy, warfare history, Major League Baseball, and Mrs. Hottentot, my second grade substitute teacher, who made us say a prayer and a pledge every morning. Uh, join us next time when we talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the disappearance of the Statue of Liberty, uh, the breakup of the breakup of the Beatles, and a whole lot more. So until then, be kind. Be kind.